Hello, 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 everybody, and all of you. Episode 41. We're in our 40s now. In our 40s. I've done 41 episodes with, well, I've had a couple repeat guests. So we're talking 37 guests or so at this point. Um, it's, it's been fun. I really love doing podcasts. I don't, honestly, I don't even know if any, I know some of you listen, but I have no idea how many people are listening. I don't actually look at the numbers. I just, I'd like hearing the feedback. So if you guys are, and gals are digging this, let me know, you know, like I just, I have fun. I love talking to people, love getting stories out. And this week's guest is uh, somebody uh, I would, I'm always thinking of people cause I've met so many interesting people in my life and the music business and, and in life in general. And, uh, and I'm always trying to find different people to talk to. And, and it might not always be people that you all know about, you know, it doesn't have to be famous people, just people I know I'm going to have good conversations with this guy, this guy, Roger Lotring, he and I met 2002, I believe in New Hartford, Connecticut, in the basement dressing room at the Webster Theater when Brand New Sin was opening for Black Label Society. On our very first tour with them, uh, Roger was writing for Metal Edge Magazine, one of the best metal magazines of all time. If you guys are old school metalheads, you'll know exactly that magazine. Uh, and he came up to do a feature article on us, which was to this day. One, my favorite interview I've ever done. Just we, him and I clicked. And second of all, I thought he just portrayed us and myself and what I was getting out to, to perfectly. I remember reading that. And after reading all these other articles that were coming out of time and magazine articles and radio interviews, and sometimes I always felt awkward, but he was probably one of the first people that I ever got interviewed by. And I felt just completely comfortable and just, and, and ended up striking up a friendship. And to this day, we've, uh, we've kept in contact. And the other day I'm sitting there thinking about another themed um, podcast. And I'm like, man, I should have Roger on. And, and Roger, I hit Roger up. I'm like, Hey man, do you want to be on the, on the podcast? And Roger's like, I, I'd love to, what do you want to talk about? What's the, what's the subject? And I'm like, Hmm, I gotta, I gotta think about this one, you know? So I thought about it for a day or so. And I'm like, you know what? We talked about the death of the rock star and my good friend rain, which I want to have another, I want to have a part two of that one because that <laughs> so much has happened even since that episode a few weeks ago, not even a month ago. Like we've lost more rock and rollers. And, uh, and, and like I said, we were kind of foreshadowing, but we'll get back to that. But I'm like, what am I going to talk to Roger about? Here's an age old argument. And this is one that I brought up on my, on my social medias often over the years. What decade had the best music? And you, you, you immediately want to be like, Oh, it's that decade. Oh, it's that decade. But you can't, because as soon as you gravitate towards that first one and whatever one comes out of your mouth, then all of a sudden you start thinking of the other decades, especially if you're a huge music fan and you're like, well, man, the seventies or mom, the eighties or the nineties or the sixties or the early two thousands. Like, but which one is the best? I have an opinion and I've thought about it for years and years and years. I will get into it when I talk to Roger. I really want to hear what Roger's opinion is. I won't divulge mine until we get into this conversation, but I have thought about it for years and I, I will stand by my choice. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my good friend, Roger. Roger. 
Good afternoon, kind and mysterious stranger. <laughs> What's up, my friend? How are you, man? How, uh, living the dream. <laughs> uh, aren't we all? I, I, the, oh, God. <laughs> the dream, the nightmare, the, the daydream. I don't know what it is anymore. I just, I'm just along for the ride at this point, don't you think? Yeah, I I think so. The older I get, I find out that I, I don't really know much of anything. <laughs> That's there's two there's two trains of thought. I think my mom and I've had this conversation before, where it was like, all right, do, there's this amazing perspective that comes along with getting older, right? And I think that just experiences happening too. But at the same time, you feel less, you feel more clueless than you ever have as to figuring anything out. <laughs> Actually, something that I stumbled upon, I, I mean, just the last seven years, and I, th- and I think you're, you've gone through from what I see from what you um, share of yourself on social media, there are a lot of similarities path-wise. Yeah. And uh, I, I stumbled across this several years ago that, you know, we, we get locked into what we're supposed to be, what we're supposed to be good at, what we're supposed to like. And unless you realize that you don't know everything about yourself, you don't know all of your talents, you don't know all of your likes or dislikes, then you just carry through life doing the same thing. And all of a sudden I realized, you know, that I don't know anything about anything. So (laughs) suddenly things that I just convinced myself that I had no interest in, no ability at doing, um, didn't like that. Once I threw those preconceptions out and tried different things, suddenly all these new avenues of, of the world opened up to me as far as, wow, I never had any idea that I would actually be good at what have you cooking, for example, had no idea that I'd be good at it or that I would enjoy it. So, you know, trying different food, trying, uh, different experiences. So, you know, that's something I'm grateful for that because I know a lot of people don't stumble across that. They just, they fall into career and, you know, this is what I, I always order the same thing at the same restaurant on the same day of the week. You know, this is my career. This is what I do. And, and they just get locked into that and they're miserable. Yeah. And, and yeah, that's kind of the choice that I made. I'm like, I don't want to be miserable. Obviously I'm a musician. That's what I'm always going to be. It's probably going to be the core of what I am. But as I get older, I really enjoy this, uh, these other parts of what I'm learning about myself, you know, my fitness, my mental health, uh, I'm going to be doing another podcast on top of this podcast. This one's going to be mainly music based and like, you know, I'll get some conspiracy people on here every once in a while, but the new podcast I'm going to launch is going to be really focused on fitness and, uh, and, and mental health. And that mm. becomes such a huge part of who I am to the point where like, I think that podcast is really going to become something to the point where I'm maybe that will be some, that would be part two of my career. You know, who knows? You know what? Something like that. That's phenomenal. Just because I think there's, I think there's a lot of value for somebody that might be in a similar situation and, and to see somebody else that they can identify with like, Oh, Oh, okay. I'm not the only one. Oh, I, you know, I, Oh, I recognize that about myself. And, and I think a lot of times people just need that, that, um, positive reinforcement that it's, it's, 
you know, it's funny you talk about mental health and I never realized suddenly pieces fall into place that like, oh, I just, I always just thought I was short tempered or I was an asshole or I was, you know, whatever. (laughs) And suddenly now looking back, I'm like, no, you were just reacting to pain pain and trauma okay. like i'm like i'm yeah. unpacking so much stuff this is a whole other conversation for another day but i mean yeah it's a it's a beautiful thing as we get older and both sides i'm i'm kind of surrendered to just like hey man i'm just seeing i'm just here again like i said i'm just here kind of for the ride and i'm gonna enjoy it while i'm on this spinning blue ball you know because we don't know it could be it could be gone in an instant as we're as we're learning every day in the rock and world rock and roll world you know yeah so, yeah but to get to where we're really going here, you know, okay. is uh, no, that's fine because I always, I always roll tape, quote unquote, roll tape as soon as the phone starts ringing with somebody because my producer does stuff. And plus, I, it, this always makes my favorite podcaster when people are just like, oh, like Rogan, and you'll start listening to Rogan. And you're like, what are they talking about? And then it just rolls into whatever. It's natural conversation. So my intro was, is that I met you in the fall of 2002 at the Webster Theater um, opening for Black Label Society when you came and did a piece on us for Metal Edge magazine. So yeah. Wow. That's a long time. That's a long time. And, and a couple of lifetimes ago, yeah, you know, and I mean, I'm thinking in my head the other day, cause me and the guys in brand new sim, were talking that this coming year in 2022 will be our 20th anniversary of the first album coming out. And, um, and we're going to do a couple of shows, you know, to, to, to commemorate that we did a reunion show a couple of years ago, but we're, commemorating like hey let's do this again on the 20th anniversary you know so cool and you know and it's just like man thinking about this you know it's been 19 years since you and i met then i'm like wow man it doesn't seem that long ago but then you start thinking about life and you're like man it has been a long time ago and the preface go go ahead go ahead i I was gonna say you're absolutely right but again it it doesn't it seems like just yesterday but again it for me it's lifetimes ago right. <laughs> really just just the changes that we go through as yeah. human beings like wow i used to do that <laughs> right. wow right huh. that's what i did i lived in a van and, and they ate you know tuna fish out of the can because that's all we could afford and we did i used to drink 20 beers a night and still be able to walk around and function i can't even drink two and feel a hangover the next day at this point you know so it's like <laughs> so much either. has changed so much has changed but you know i said that you know to this day and I, you and i have i've talked about this like it's still one of my favorite interviews that we've ever done one of the best written ones that came out and it's like because at that time, I was still relatively green to how to like deal with the media. And me being the singer, I was always put in the spot like, hey, you got to do the interview. You got to do radio guy. You're always the voice of the band. So there was a lot of times I was, I didn't really know how to speak or if I was speaking correctly. But like with you, I had this very, like you and I just connected right away. I don't even remember what it was, but I just felt super comfortable hanging out with you and it really kind of set the tone. And like I said, you know, that I go back to that interview a lot and I came across a box of magazines and I found that magazine the other day. And that's what kind of prompted me to hit you up. Be like, Hey man, we should, we should chat, you know, let's chat. I'm, I'm very humbled by all of that. Thank you. But Thank you very but, much. But it's true. And I mean, I think the guys in the band always thought that too, because it was, that was, that was cool for us to be in, you know, 
we, we, I grew up reading those magazines, you know, Metal Edge. Oh, it, was cool. it, it was cool for me to be, to be a writer for Metal Edge. Oh, I did the same thing. I, I grew up reading those magazines and, to, you know, to suddenly see my name in it on a monthly basis. Yeah. Oh my God, it didn't get any better than that. Well, how, how did you, how did you land that gig? Before we get to our topic, why don't you give us a little, how did you get to Metal Edge? How did that happen? And in, in, in a small, like, there's got to be a longer story, but give me the Cliff Notes version. Oh, let me, let me see if I can whittle it down to the cliff notes. Um, I, do you remember Rip Magazine? Of course. My favorite. Lon Friend. Okay. Come on. Yeah. The man. Rip Magazine. And I should preface this by saying that as a kid, I grew up as, as just a, um, a, a huge Kiss fan, like a lot of us. Mm-hmm. And in 1990, Rip Magazine ran a contest called the Kiss Contest from Hell. Contest spelled with the letter K, of course. And uh, the premise of the contest was, if you had the opportunity to interview Kiss, what would you ask them? So I, as I always did, I procrastinated and banged it out on a, on a manual typewriter because it was 1990. Um, and got to the post office and made sure it was postmarked the, the, the last possible day you could send it in, sent in the questions I would ask and thought nothing of it. And I was actually, uh, preparing several months. I think after that, I was preparing to help one of my parents move, um, from the East coast to, to the Bible belt basically. And the first night of our travels, I called my, my then girlfriend back home to check on her. How's everything going? And she said, somebody, somebody from the record company and rip magazine. And like these people were calling, apparently you won. (laughs) You're like, so, (laughs) so they, I, I, they flew me from where, where I was traveling to. I got to my destination. They flew me from there. Um, back to the East Coast, and uh, the final night of the Hot in the Shade tour at Madison Square Garden, I went to, I got to see the show. First time, I, well, not the first time, but I got to be backstage, got to meet the band, and a couple of weeks later, I did I did the very first interview I ever did. It was a phone interview with Gene Simmons. And, uh, <laughs> Nothing like being thrown to the wolves. Like, hey, what was your first right, interview? Oh, it was some right. local band. No, Gene Simmons, the biggest no, rock Gene star Simmons ever. At, and my and my second interview was a couple of weeks later with Paul Stanley. <laughs> so ultimately what happened is Rip Magazine never did anything with the interview. They were supposed to print the interview and they, they never printed the interview. So I was trying to figure out, you know, growing up as a kid obsessed with music, but not being a musician, you know, what talents do I have? How can I apply this? And the, the girlfriend I lived with at the time pointed to a local music uh, uh, monthly music paper and said, gee, I'll bet you could do a, a better job than that. So I convinced a really good friend to quit his job and become uh, an advertising sales manager. And I went out and bought a, a, a early version of a Macintosh computer at an ungodly interest rate and just started publishing my own music newspaper and use that to build up my name, meet people, and in the meantime, while I was doing that, I just kept submitting to, you know, things like um, Metal Edge and, and other other music publications. And ultimately, and I, and, and I would 
pretty much on an annual basis say, yep, we got your stuff. We're not really, we don't have the resources or we're not looking to bring in other writers at this time. And ultimately what happened was in 2000, I think it was 2001. Um, I was going to, I was still doing my own uh, publication, which was called prime choice. And at this point it did transition to online and I was going to New York to interview Blackie Wallace. Wasp had a new album coming out. And just over the course of me trying to establish myself, I had, had interviewed him numerous times. And the night before I was going to New York, he got together for dinner with Paul Gargano, who was the editor yep. of Metal Edge magazine. And I ended up getting, I don't remember if it was a phone call or an email, but Paul contacted me that, that evening and said, listen, I went to dinner with, with Blackie. We never got around to doing the interview. And he said, you were going to be interviewing him the following day in New York city. And he really recommended that I check out your stuff and why not have Roger do the interview for metal edge. <laughs> and that's literally how I, after years and years and years of trying to get my foot in the door with metal edge, um, I got into metal edge because of Blackie Wallace from Wasp. That's so cool. But n- yeah. let's go back. Whatever happened to those interviews, if they never got published, did you ever publish them? The, the kiss interviews? Yeah. I did. I, in my, when I established my, my own, uh, music newspaper, when I established prime choice, uh, eventually I, I published, uh, them there. Awesome. I was, that was, that was so curious. I'm like, all right, well, cool. And like, man, I, I have people, I mean, you, have you met Lon? Did you ever get to meet Lon friend? Did you ever? I never did get to meet Lon. Okay. No, I have, I have a few friends, uh, uh, Billy White Jr. and Robert John, who both worked with Guns N' Roses. Robert John was one of their main photographers. Photographers, yeah. yeah. And, yep. and, and Billy Billy was the guy that designed the the skulls and on the cross. And they worked with Brand New Sin, and they're very close with Lon. So I should, through the channels, be like, hey, man, you should really publish this interview that this kid won, or this guy won years ago. So, Oh, my fun. God, I'd have to find it. I'd have to find it. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> no, what I've always, I'm always curious of like people, but and this is what I tell. And I had this conversation earlier. I was getting tattooed earlier today and we we're just talking about my tattoo guy's been tattooing 27 years. He's one of the legends in this town. He's been doing it a long time. And you know, I've been doing music in this, in this town for over two decades. And you know, we get younger people coming to us and be like, man, I, I want to do what you do or like, how many, how did you get this many followers on your social media or how did you blow up on Twitch or how did you become this tattoo guy? Like we're going back and forth and we kept telling him like, man, what you didn't see is all this, like literally tens of thousands of hours of hours of hard work. I was just about to say that. Yes. It goes, it goes back to this book. I always mention this book to people. It's called outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. And it really talks about the 10,000 hour principle. Like that, that's, that's what it takes. It doesn't mean you're going to become the Beatles or Bill Gates, which he references in that book. Um, but that's what he says. It goes, it takes a long time. And then 10,000 hours is roughly 10 years of your life. Roughly. To hone your craft. Yeah, yes. you're absolutely. And, and that's what I did. I mean, I, I started publishing my own paper in 1992 and my, I, I did some stuff before Metal Edge for um, uh, 
uh, Fangoria, the company that published oh, yeah. Fangoria, did. Um, they actually did a. Um, a they they licensed Kiss licensed them to do a magazine when Psycho Circus came out. So I actually did some stuff for them, and, and they ended up tentatively getting into the uh, music magazine market. And I and I did some things, and I did some online things with um, Iron Maiden's management company was was trying to have an online presence toward the end of the '90s as far as being a, um, a, a pub, a music publication. So I did do some stuff, but yeah, for the most part, it, it was a good nine or 10 years of just yep. hard, hard work and really just learning from mistakes. And, you know, it's, it's funny because I'm in the, in the process of, of um, preparing to move. And so I'm starting to pack away a lot of things from this, previous life of being a music journalist and I'm coming across all kinds of things. And I actually came across the first issue of the music publication that I, that I published myself. And I read the first concert review that I ever wrote and reading it. It's remarkable that I ever managed to have a career out of this because it was horrible, absolutely horrible. Well, you understand the same thing right. too. You know, you, you probably went through the same thing as a musician that oh, yeah. if you listen to some of the stuff that you did when you started out, you're probably wondering how, how did I ever manage to get to this point? <laughs> well, what was the concert that you saw? Now I'm curious. I was, it was Tesla on their uh, Psychotic Supper tour. God, what a great band. What a great band. So, well, this this is a good way to lead in with a t- topic. And I've, uh, you know, sometimes I free form, but and like when you said, hey, man, you know, what do you want to talk about? What's the subject? And I'm like, man, speaking with Roger, it'd be really cool to come up with something cool because I have a couple themed here and there. And I always and, have and- a... Uh, go ahead. And we, and we can free form too. I was no. just kind of, I didn't know, no. I didn't know how you went about. So whatever you want to do, but you know, we, you never know where it goes, but I do like this thought because I'm like, you know what? I, I there's very few people that can have this conversation with that have a complete understanding of where music is. And I'm like, you know, I put this discussion up on my social media a, a few times over the years. And I always say, Hey man, what is the best decade of music? Like, like, you know, is it the sixties? Is it the seventies? It's the eighties. It's the nineties. I only consider those four decades, anything after and before that, or, you know, either was like, you know, in its infancy or we've gone past the point where I think, you know, <laughs> a decade has the influence that those four, those 40 years had, you know, mm-hmm. uh, those 40 years, I think, shaped everything that we have now. And prior to that, we just didn't know what the hell was going on. We were just learning how to, like, record music and, like, put it out as a medium. You know, before that, like, you literally had to experience it in person, you know. So um, there's always the argument. And I said in the intro, it's like when I ask anybody, whether it's in person or online, they'll immediately blurt out a decade. But as you think about it, then you're like, well, man, no, I think about it. And then you start thinking about another decade and you start thinking about the bands and what that music did then. So my thought, and I put plenty of this in there and we'll discuss why mine is the seventies. Cause I think the sixties were the baby, but the seventies is when everything exploded in Oh, there's so much that happened in the seventies that like just shaped everything. I think in my opinion, and that was always my gut. It's the seventies. Wow. Um, do, do you, I, have you thought about I, this? I mean, you know, 
I, 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 I have, and to be honest with you, boy, I, I, my opinion, my, my perspective on that could, could change on any given day. <laughs> True. Um, right? yeah. You know, I mean, it's just like when you ask somebody, well, what's your favorite band or your favorite album or favorite song? Well, ask me now. And in five minutes, it'll be something different. <laughs> Cause I'll remember, Oh yeah. I really like that one way better than this one because this, right. Yeah. So, I mean, there's really, it's, you know, I, and I, I, I agree with you. I, 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 I could say the seventies, um, because there's so much formative stuff that, that influenced what came in the eighties, yes. which would lead to, but wait a minute, let me change my answer to the eighties. So, <laughs> right. uh, um, you know, one of the things about the seventies that was phenomenal was just, there were no, there were no boundaries yes. that kept the listener in the same lane. Um, and, that, and that's a huge thing that I say in this very similar fashion. It's exactly, but keep going. Yeah. Yeah. There were, I mean, uh, uh, there was nothing that said, you know, especially if you look at, at concert bills in the seventies, it would just be a, <laughs> mi- mi- a, a mixed bag of, of various styles of, of music but it all worked together. I think the audiences were more accepting of, you know, things that were on different ends of the spectrum. So in that sense, yeah, you really, you, you really have to um, look at the seventies as, okay, that, that really could have been the, the best decade of music just because of that variety and the exposure right. to, um, to, to things. I think, you know, I think you get to, to, to contemporary, well, I don't know. Maybe maybe it's shifting a little bit, but I think there was certainly a, a, a period of time in recent years where people are just focused on one type of thing, and they're not they're not looking beyond the parameters of whatever their their specific um, preferred style of music. Right. Is. I mean, really, in the past twenty years, like anytime you go to a concert, whether it's a club or you know a, sm- a small theater tour, it's like four bands and. It, no offense, all bands are great, but they all kind of very similar sounding. And it's like, ugh. by the end of the night, by the headliner, you're like, well, I, I've been hearing the same shit all night pretty much. So it's like, I like variety. I think back to some of my favorite concert bills. They were just all over the place. I'm like, oh, it was this band, that band. I'm like, wow, they all toured together. It's like, yeah, give give people variety so that there's there's this because your ears can only take so much. Like your ears want to hear something different. And you know, in the seventies, you know, there were still AM radio and FM radio. The formats were right. They, they, they still hadn't like solidified genres yet. You know, heavy metal was kind of a genre, but it was like what heavy metal is, was then is completely what heavy metal is now. And some of the heavy metal bands that you think about from the seventies wouldn't be labeled heavy metal. Now, <laughs> you know, if they came out, now, right, they would be, right. Oh, they're, they're this, you know, oh, they're stoner rock or they're the, you know, they're hard rock or they're radio rock back then. They were just heavy metal. Whereas now there's just so much splintering. Uh, that I, I, it, you're I like, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. That you're just like in the seventies that didn't really exist. You didn't have these like uh, FM was like a, a freaking Wild West show. Like whatever you want yeah. to do on FM, you could do. AM radio was the place where it was like homogenized and this is the pop and all that. And FM was like, well, fuck it. We're going to do whatever we want. You know, and that obviously changed, you know, 
but that is I, where I, I go to. Yeah, you know? yeah. I I actually last year when when um, everybody was locked down because of the pandemic and and you were starting to see artists of of any type of medium, music or you know writing or whatever. People people were uh, doing stuff at home and posting it on social media. So I shared a post and it was um, it was an acapella version of brandy by looking glass and uh and it was them it was them doing it and i shared that on my social media and the first post was my my best friend who i've known since i was five years old ridiculing me like what do you know about this you know where did where did you hear and i'm like you grew up in the same area that i did listening to wich you know 1310 am radio while eating my cereal, getting ready for school when I was like six years old. You know, that's the stuff that you would hear. You would hear Looking Glass and Seals and Crofts and, and uh, America and uh, Ambrosia, stuff like that. And all of a sudden, I'm like, I love that stuff. And all of a sudden, I started seeing like different people that I used to um, work with when I was a music journalist saying, had no clue never ever thought that you would have any interest in that because my, my forte was hard rock and heavy metal. Right. I'm like, Oh, are you kidding? I love yacht rock. Right. <laughs> and here's the, here's the thing. A lot of these heavy metalers that everyone thinks is like, you know, Oh, they're all gloom and doom. And, and that's all they do is heavy metal and eat and sleep heavy metal. And yeah, there's a bunch of those people that are out there, but for the most part, when we're not listening to heavy metal, like that's our outlet. But at the same time, like we got to get away from this. We're listening to all kinds of different music. You know, it's like, Oh my God, don't, don't think just because, you know, there was a quote that I think, I don't know if it was Phil Lesh or Bob Weir said one time, and he says, the only problem with grateful dead fans is that they only listen to the grateful dead. <laughs> yeah. And you're absolutely right. I think that's a, a, a misperception that people assume that their favorite bands and their favorite musicians, that whatever they, they play, that that's solely what they listen to. I, I was in a hotel lobby in Newark, New Jersey years ago with, um, Skid Row. Yeah. And I was standing, waiting for, I was standing there with Snake Sabo waiting for the elevator. And in the music that the hotel was pumping in, they were playing a song off of, um, they were playing meatloaf. They were playing something off of bat out of hell. And we're standing there waiting for the elevator. And we kind of look at each other in our peripheral vision. And we see each <laughs> other kind of like singing along under our breath, yeah. our breaths and tapping our feet. And, you know, if you would ask anybody, you know, you would have never, most people would have never said, well, he, he doesn't know meatloaf. Neither of these guys know meatloaf. Are you kidding? That out of hell? Right. Oh, there you go. Going back to the seventies. So that, there you go. Put a tick mark down for, yeah. for uh, the seventies. Another check mark for the seventies. Because <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, if anyone, any of my friends that have been on 70,000 tons of metal, that big cruise were all like the extreme mm. metal bands are on. If you watch some of the videos of the people who've been on that cruise, the real fun part of that is not only, I mean, obviously seeing all those bands, but at later at night when everyone ends up in the lounges doing karaoke and you're watching people like Kirk Weinstein, you know, from, um, crowbar like up there singing songs like that like brandy like and singing all these amazing pop songs and they're just having fun because 
I mean, they listen to that too, you know, it's like, man, you know, and that, and that's it goes back to like a lot of those musicians that are into that stuff. It all grew up in the seventies where there, you didn't, I don't think it was till the eighties that I feel, I mean, I was only, I don't, my memories don't really start until the eighties cause I was born in 74. So, but from what I gather from my brothers and the other people that grew up in that time, uh, you weren't as ridiculed for like, like being pigeonholed as like you're a metalhead. You're, you know, you're, you know, you're in the pop and all that. It was really when the eighties came that there was like, all of a sudden these lines started being drawn, you know, and everybody yeah. had to be categorized. Like, well, what are you? Like when brands, brand new thing came out and they're like, well, are you heavy metal? Are you hard rock? Are you stoner rock? Are you doing we're, we're playing rock and roll. Lemmy, yep. Lemmy never wanted to be, Lemmy hated being called, he hated Motorhead being called heavy metal. Oh, he said, absolutely. He, goes, he would, he would do, yeah, he was, Chuck Berry played really fast. He goes, we're, we're playing rock and roll. He goes, I don't know what the hell you yeah. guys are listening to, but we, he goes, he used to say that, hi, we're Motorhead and we play rock and roll and then they bust into a song. Yeah. It's true. He's yeah. playing rock and roll just really fast and really loud. It's really all it is. It's like, why do you guys have to pigeonhole this? And and that's where I think. And then I think in the seventies, uh, I think artists had, you know, I mean, never had complete control of their artistic vision, but they had a lot more control over the artistic vision of what they want to do as a record with their albums had more freedom and didn't have as much pressure from a record label. Then they started getting in the eighties and nineties and going forward. And then it just became the creative process almost was lost to like A and R people and marketing people and everything else. And, and, and I think that's the thing. I think in the seventies, you, you had a, a time when there wasn't a clearly developed marketing plan. Right. Um, there wasn't a guidebook for here's how to, you know, break a band. Here's how to market a band. Um, I think there was a lot of trial and error. I mean, you look at somebody like Kiss, if you could ever get a hold of um, their tour itineraries, they made absolutely no sense. They would literally, it, it wouldn't be routed in a sense that would, would define in, in a way that would make financial sense. It would be, okay, we're playing in this region of the country today. And then tomorrow we're going to be a thousand miles away. <laughs> uh, and, it, and, and from, from an economical standpoint, that makes no sense. How much money are you allocating for fuel and transportation and trucking and, you know, to, right. to, rather than playing the, the next city 300 miles up the road, but that's just the way, you know, things were, I mean, there's, you know, there's stories of, um, what's the, Oh, uh, the, the, the documentary, we are twisted fucking sister. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a point in that where they talk about that. They drove, God knows how many, they just basically drove forever for, I think it was a, a 20 minute, Slot somewhere that they felt it was just insane. You know, drove overnight, flat tire, camper broke down, the whole nine yards. But it was like they had to get there. And you look at it now, who the hell would do that now? <laughs> Nobody. No. But I, I think that's the thing as well. In the seventies, there wasn't anything like okay, there wasn't a, a, a perception of here are the parameters of what your band does. Um. So bands could just go in any direction. They could try anything. You you look at 
any of the bands that you love, you know, look at what Judas Priest did back then, or look at, you know, even look at Queen, look at from where the yeah. first Queen album in 1973, Queen, to, well, the game was 1980, so jazz, I think, was 78. But you look to where they were, where they were getting, all right, Crazy Little Thing Called Love was released in 1979 as a single. So look at, look at from where they came from the first Queen album, Keep Yourself Alive, Liar, to Crazy Little Thing Called Love. And that development was over the course of, Six years yeah. in the seventies. Could you do that now? No. Could you could you go through so many stylistic changes? No, no, absolutely not at all. Not. They would they would want you to to spit out those things. And and the other thing that goes back to the seventies is that artists were allowed to have two or three records, and they were still yeah. being like, "All right, cool, we're we're standing behind you." Whereas now. I mean, there was bands in the in the mid two thousands that were getting Ozfest slots. Uh, major label Ozfest slots and going out and by the middle of Ozfest, their record had not taken off. They were getting dropped and they were literally leaving Ozfest. You know, like we just started. We just put this record out. We have, we've only done like two tours and then and this Ozfest, and they're like, "Yep, yeah, you're done." It's like, whoa! Like if that mentality was happening back then, we wouldn't have. We definitely wouldn't have Kiss. We wouldn't no. have, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't even have Aerosmith. People don't realize that Dream On was not a hit. It was on the first record, but it wasn't a hit until later on in their career. You know, like if they, if yeah. they, it, we wouldn't have these bands. And it's like, fuck, man, what bands have we missed out on because of the new mentality of like, you got to produce right now? Yeah. It's, it, you know, and it's a shame too that what bands, are out there that we're never going to see the full the full range of their creativity because they're funneled into this is what you do this is what we can sell um, and and they're not really allowed to try something different. But I, I think we're we're on almost on the other side of that now that radio is not what radio used to be. Uh, MTV doesn't exist, you know, that the, all those mediums that were used in the eighties and the nineties, which is where the, uh, our, the rest of our um, discussion or argument or I wouldn't call it an argument, but discussion <laughs> would go is that those both, both of those decades could, you know, arguably be some of the best as well because, because of those mediums. Um, but now those mediums don't, there's not a funnel, like there isn't a radio funneling stuff to you. There's an MTV funneling stuff to you. Now it's back to a point where it's back in the band's hands. And yes, you do need some, you know, some marketing and you need some money to be able to do certain things. Um, but I think bands have now more creativity over what they want to do as a band uh, that they have that ability to to develop themselves. It's just going to be done in a completely different sense than it was done back then, you know? Right. And it's, and it's not going to be on a massive scale just because the sheer volume of material that's coming out, there's right. absolutely no way for an individual to possibly um, be exposed to everything. Right. So things that things are going to fall through the cracks. No, they're going to fall through the cracks or it's like one of the last conversations. Well, not one of the last conversations, one of the conversations right before I left brand new sin and we were, you know, we were, you know, Century Media wanted to renegotiate our deal. We didn't know if we wanted to renegotiate with them because, and my guys in the band were pissed. They're like, well, fuck them. I'm like, well, dude, we haven't made them any money. We've put out two records and, you know, we're just in the hole. Financially, 
Absolutely. They're going to have to renegotiate. They're not going to keep giving us this money when they're not seeing a return on it. You know, so, uh, and I was having a conversation with my A&R guy, this guy named Steve Joe, who's still in, in the business. He works with prosthetic records. I think he might be the president of prosthetic at this point. And Steve is like, I'm like, where do you see this going? Because this is like 2006 and 2007 when it was bleak. It was just bleak. The industry was bleak. There was no money to be had. And I'm like, what's going to happen? And he's like, he goes, it's, it's all going to become niche, man. He goes, I see the future as a very niche thing. And he goes, I think that's a good thing. He's because, and he gave me an example. He was really into Japanese uh, anime. And he was talking mm-hmm. about this whole world of Japanese. And he's like, do you know anything about it? I'm like, well, I know what it looks like. Yes. And he goes, but do you have any idea what goes on in that world and the fan base that's worldwide with it? I'm like, no. He goes, and he started giving me numbers of people that were like how much they're making and how big this artist was and how big this movie was. I'm like, whoa, I didn't even know about it. He goes, exactly. Because that's what's going to happen with music. He goes, you're going to see these artists that get really big and you're going to have no clue. Growing up, we all knew who Madonna was. We all knew who Kiss was. We all knew who Queen was. Whether you liked them or not, they were a household name. But now you can get bands that are selling out Madison Square Garden that I'm like, I don't, who? Who the hell is this? I've never heard of this band. A band like Wolfpack, or was it? Volpeck. And they did like two nights at the Madison Square Garden. I'm like, who is this band? They sold out Madison Square Garden. Never heard of them. But a lot of people had if they're selling out Madison Square Garden. So his vision of where it was heading, it was like, okay, you may not get to the masses, but you're going to build these niches. And these niches are going to probably be more profitable for a band than they used to sell when they sell 5 million records and they're still in the hold at a record label, you know? And, and you know what? And that's a good point. I think that's a huge misperception that happens where you have people, especially people uh, when you have uh, people that are our age, that remember back in the eighties and they equate the enormity of something with success. You know, they equate, Oh, a band plays Madison square garden. That's a success. And I think that they, they don't look at it or they don't know. They're not aware of the, the economics of it. Now they see bands playing venues or situations that back then you, you would have, laughed at but they don't realize that they're very lucrative now like like fairs you know you you see people that that will um make fun of a band because they're playing at a fair (laughs) but they don't look at it economically they don't understand okay let's say you've got a you know well up where you are it's the new york state fair is that correct which is the second largest fair in the country behind texas yeah right so how how many people come through those and it's what a week week and a half uh it's it's 12 days but now just got expanded to 20 that was supposed to happen last year so yeah we're going three weeks now yeah three weeks so 20 days how many people do you think come through the turnstiles at that fair over the course of 20 days? Oh, it's 100,000, 200 million? Oh, millions. Like in 12 days, the last time we had the fair, I think the total count was 1.7 million people in 12 days. Like that was the highest. Right. Like at the low end of a day, like a slow day, if it's raining, 50,000, uh, 40, 50,000. And some of the bigger days, you're, you're talking almost 200,000 people walking through the gates. All right. So let's round it to two, <laughs> two million, two million people. What, okay. What's it cost to get into that fair? 10 bucks, 20 bucks? Cheaper than that. Now they make days where it's only a dollar and you get in, you know? So, okay. But, but let's say uh, just a regular without a st- five bucks. Yeah. 
So two million people, five bucks, that's ten million dollars they have to work with. So they've got their entertainment budget to bring in a band to play at a fair is extremely lucrative. Yeah. Yeah. So so people that are that are ridiculing like I, I remember it's been a few it's been quite a few years, but there was there was a period where Def Leppard was playing state fairs and people were ridiculing them. I'm like, Are you kidding? No, they're they are they're laughing them they were laughing their way to the bank. They're making it killing yeah, off. Because of they it. don't have to rely completely on the ticket sales to that concert. Well, here's the thing in New York State in the New York State Fair, back in the day, before things changed about, well, I don't know, six six, seven years ago, we had a grandstand that was inside the fair where you know the track was and they would, you know, back in the day, there used to be horse racing and car racing and all this stuff. And then it mainly become, that was where the main bands played. There was one stage called Chevy Court, and that was the concert that was for free, quote unquote, if you paid to get in, you got to see whatever mm. concert was that, that. And they would have two right. they would have two acts a day over there. You know, they'd say like, hey, we have Survivor in the afternoon and Cheap Trick at night, Bootsy Collins in the afternoon and, you know, Bruno Mars one night, you know, like before all these things. So you get those two acts a day over there, which is still a thing, two acts on that one stage. And in the grandstand, you would pay an extra admission to go see a grandstand show. Now they got rid of the grandstand and they made the main thing that I called Chevy court, the main hacked. And then we're putting bands over there uh, and then had another satellite stage for the smaller bands in that every year, New York state will put out because of uh, the freedom of information act or whatever can and will publish how much each of these bands got paid. And I remember a few years ago, it was like, you know, Jackal had played and, uh, and um, you know, Gary Puckett in the union band and stuff like that. And they list all the 24 acts that played over 12 days just at Chevy court at the smaller act and what they all got paid. And you're like, Holy crap. They paid Jackal $40,000. Like Jackal isn't getting 40 grand to play the machine shop in Flint, Michigan. No. Okay. And that's no. their market for the most part. They're playing clubs, but when they're going to go to a, they're going to go play state fair. It goes right to where they're like, dude, I played state. I would exclusively play state fairs because they pay big money well and not only that when you when you further look at the economics of it now because back in the 80s everybody associated success with you've got this giant stage production so you're you know you're you've got several tour buses you've got god knows how many tractor trailer trucks you know you've got a a traveling crew of anywhere from 40 to 100 people well you know, you, you look at it back then, yes, maybe somebody that was playing a Madison Square Garden was commanding a, a, a huge amount of money, but their overhead to bring that <laughs> show in ate away at all of that. There was, there was, a, there was a, a piece that was done years ago on 60 Minutes about um, Bon Jovi touring. Like, what does it take to, to run this? And, and this is years and years ago. And at that point, um, John Bon Jovi told, I think it was Ed Bradley who interviewed him, but whoever the, whoever the interviewer was, John Bon Jovi told him, it's a million dollars a week for me to keep this on the road. Yeah. You know? So you look at Jackal, okay, Jackal's getting paid 40 grand to play at the New York State Fair. <laughs> their overhead is to fly there and yep. check their guitars in, you know, as baggage. Yep. So their overhead is next to nothing. And they're getting paid forty grand. Yeah, they're do, they're probably doing much much better financially than they would have been if they were playing a big arena, you know, and Ab- carrying all of that production. Ab- absolutely, you know, and so that and I, I tell people that all the time. I'm like, listen, man, it, it, you know, I know what it costs us to keep brand new sin on the road, 
And we were, we had nothing. I mean, we were just trying to eat and get back. I'm like, dude, this stuff starts costing money. And it's the bigger you get, you got to put on the bigger show because you're demanding a higher ticket price. People want more of this, more of that. They want all that and they want them to keep coming back. So it's like, man, this just costs like, what was it like when Van Halen got Sammy Hagar in the band, they didn't have the money to like really tour. So like Sammy was like putting up all that money when that, you know, when 5150 came out, he put up all that money to get them out on the road. The story goes that, that when Hagar joined Van Halen and uh, he was just shocked that because he, he was earning more money as a solo artist than they were earning as Van Halen. Yeah. Yeah. You know, which shocked him like, wait a minute, there's something, this this is skewed. There's something wrong here. This is not right. You know, but, but it's funny too because I think there's a thing that happens, and and I think I'm I'm guessing that you have reached the point where you have come full circle as a musician. And when I say full circle, probably fifteen or sixteen years ago, um, my wife had a friend whose boyfriend played in a local band, and he found out that I wrote for metal edge magazine and other magazines and he wanted, he wanted me to come see his band. And finally my wife said, can, can we please just go see this band? So his girlfriend will stop bothering me, but <laughs> sure, no problem. <clears throat> so we, we went to see this band and it was like at a VFW or a Knights of Columbus hall. There was a steak dinner. you like, your ticket got you a, a really bad steak dinner and you got to see the band play. And I was really, really sick. I had gone the night before to see Slipknot and Shadows Fall, and I don't remember who else was on the bill. I probably, more than likely, had way too much to drink. <laughs> um, probably got home really late. Probably run down, and I was just really sick. All I wanted was NyQuil, orange juice, and, and my pillow. And I like finally agreed, we'll, we'll go to this thing. So we go to this thing, and... Um, they they weren't very good. The 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 guy that 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 um knew you know, like that whose girlfriend knew my wife, he, he was he was adequate. He was a guitar player. He was adequate. But the drummer couldn't keep time and there were there were issues with the vocals. But and and we stayed long enough and finally I said, Can, can we please go home? I just I just want to take NyQuil and go to sleep. And I knew the call was coming and the call was the next day. What did he think? What do you care what I think? I don't even know how to play an instrument. I'm, I'm a writer. Right. What did he think? What did he think? What did he think? And I said, you know, well, let me ask you three questions. You know, did you have fun? Yeah, we had a great time. Were, were people clapping and cheering for you or girls dancing and, and shouting and screaming? Yeah. Did you get paid? Yeah. What do you care what I think? What then? You, hit the, you, you hit the trifecta. You had a good time. People were into it and you got paid. That's the secret. And like, you know, and, and, but just no, what did you think? What did you think? And I'm like, well, all right, if you're really going to badger me, what I think is you're a middle-aged musician or is absolutely no state, state presence. You're adequate. If Keith Richards passes away, the stones aren't coming looking for you. You know, you're not you're not gonna live the rock you know, you're still you still have this rock star dream from when you were a kid. And trust me, you there are guys that like tried to live that rock star dream that are envious of you because you had fun, 
people cheer for you and you got paid and you're going home and sleeping in your own bed. Right. And, right. and I think, I think you're at that point. I think oh, you've, I totally you've, 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 you've learned that secret. Like now you've made it where it's, it's lucrative for you. It's fun again. Yep. And you know, you, you, that's the secret. If you can come full circle and, and realize that what you did when you were a kid, that you were just with your buddies in a garage and you were doing it for the sheer joy of it. If you get it to a point where you can actually like be where you are now, oh my God, you've struck Peter. Yeah. That's gold. And when I realized that, and it's this, what you just said is going to just, you know, reinforce what this conversation that I had. It was shortly after I left Brand New Sin. I was helping to run the club here in town, the Lost Horizon. I was kind of like, I was, a, you know, a stagehand. I was just doing whatever I could. And I was playing some shows as Just Joe, my solo thing, but it had not taken off to the point where it is now, obviously. And uh, the band Clutch was in town. And I'm like, well, cool. They're at my club. I'm going to go hang out with them. And I ran into those guys and we toured with them. And, and I love Clutch. So do I. I. The night, the, some Clutch. of the nicest guys in the in the world. I, let's, I, let's remove them I, from the music business. They're just awesome dudes, right? I, I actually, I actually, when I was when I was still doing it, I actually did the um, the record company bio for a couple of their albums. <sighs> yeah, it's awesome. They're such great dudes. So, you know, I took Neil to the um, to the store. He's like, man, can, you know, I, I don't know where the runner is. I'm like, well, dude, jump in my car. I'll take you. And we had this really cool conversation. He's kind of catching up on what what was going on with them and, and me. And then I got back and my favorite guy in the band is JP is the drummer one, because he's probably one of my favorite drummers in the world. I, I think he's one of the most underrated drummers on the planet. Cause no one ever mentions his name when you're talking about amazing drummers. So I'm sitting the in the man can play a, the man can play a hell of a shuffle. Let me tell you that he can. So I'm sitting in the back dressing room and anybody who knows, and you know this from knowing clutch, like JP plays drums all day long, all day whether it's a full drum kit or a drum pad. I mean, the dude never stops playing or he's not, not working on some kind of new beat he's wanting to do. So him and I are sitting in the back room and he's like, man, you know, tell me what's going on. I'm like, well, you know, I'm playing, you know, I'm playing bars and I'm, you know, I'm playing some weddings here and stuff like that. And I'm like, it almost was like, I felt like I was ashamed to tell him where I was, you know, because like I, you know, a few years prior, I was, you know, opening for them. I was opening for Motorhead. I was opening for all these great bands you know, and, you know, singing a WWE theme song. And now I'm playing, you know, Johnny's bar mitzvah on a Saturday, you know? So, you know, I was saying all that stuff and catching him up and he's looking at me like with this smile on his face. I'm like, what man? And I'm, he's like, dude, you, you figured it out, man. I go, what? Cause you figured it out. I'm like, what do you mean? What did I figure out? I'm playing a fucking bar mitzvah tomorrow. What do you, what, what, what did I figure out? He's like, dude, he goes, you making a living, man? I go, yeah. He goes, you get to go home every night to your house? Yeah. He goes, on your terms? Yeah. He goes, you don't have to pay anybody else in the band. You don't have an agent. You don't have, no, I'm doing it. He's like, dude, you, you fucking struck gold, bro. He's like, and, and that moment, I totally looked at myself differently because I, at that point, I kind of looked like, I felt like I was, fa I failed because brand new sin had failed, you know, or, you know, in the senses that, you know, we didn't break and become this big band. And I felt like I was just waiting in the holding pattern for another opportunity to come around like I'm brand new sin. When JP basically pointed out to me like, dude, no, he goes, dude, you, you figured it out, man. Congratulations. He goes, I wish I could do that. And I had a very similar conversation with Vinny, who's the drummer for the band Mo. 
And him and I were talking financials one time and I'm like, well, he's like, how much you make last year? And I told him, he's like, made more than me. <laughs> he goes, I'm in one of the biggest yeah. jam bands in the fucking world. You're fucking playing again. Johnny's bar mitzvah on a fucking Saturday. He's like, dude, you're doing just fucking fine, man. Well, and you know what? There's a, there's another aspect to that. And, and I learned this because I was just so driven, um, as far as my, my aspirations as a music journalist and everything that I wanted to do to the point that it became detrimental to other aspects of my life and relationships in my life, mm -hmm. because that just overshadowed everything. And, and I focused all of my energy on that. And at some point when I stopped doing that, one, one of the things that really, really helped me transition out of doing it was, I made a list of everything that I had ever wanted to accomplish as a, as a, a music journalist. And what surprised me was because I was thinking in terms of how I wanted it to happen. And when I actually ran down the list, I realized that I actually did accomplish everything I wanted to do. I just didn't do it in the way that I had envisioned right. it. And probably, and, um, and you probably accomplished it. And then some, Right. You know, um, I, I looked at him like, well, I wanted to, I wanted to, 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 do, to do a radio show. And I just always dismissed that I did, I did a college radio show. And I'm like, but you did it. You did it. You hosted a radio show, you know, always wanted to write, write a, a, a book, but I thought of it in terms of, of a bestseller, wrote a book, published a book, you know, looked at, always wanted to, you know, be a host on, on, um, Headbangers Ball, you know, I wanted to be on MTV and like actually interviewed, did it once, interviewed a band and it's broadcast on Headbangers. So, as, you know, as I went through this, it, it kind of allowed me to take a breath and realize like, okay, I, I did what I came here to do. I can exhale and now live life. Yeah. I think, I think especially when you're in the arts, it's really tough to measure your success. Uh, when you're at a job, you're like, well, you know, I, I've moved up to the CEO and, uh, you know, I'm doing this and I'm in charge of this part of the company and I'm making this X amount a year. When you're, when you're in that, it's very easy to like measure your success because you have numbers, you have positions at your job that you do. But when you're in the arts and you're like, you're free, you know, you're hustling, you're constantly hustling and you're not employed by one person you know, or you're, you know, could go a week without money. And then the next week you make up killing. And then the week after that, you make a half of that, you know, it's a little bit tougher because the norm, the normal people in the world, <laughs> you know, are have an easier way to measure their success. When, when you sit down and, and, and do that, I do that all every day here in my office. I have every album that I've released, whether it's solo cover record, brand new sin, elephant mountain, and there's some that haven't even made it up on there. There's, I can't fit them all. And I'm like, and every once in a while I'm looking at it. I'm like, man, I've been doing this for my first record came out in 2002 and 20 years later, there's, there's 16 albums on my wall and there's probably another 10 more that I haven't been able to put up on the wall. And then a handful of those that I guessed it on, whether they were local artists or, you know, like a mushroom head album that I guessed it on. I'm like, Holy shit. When I look at it and I look at the awards of like, best, you know, male vocalist in town or the Sammy awards, the Syracuse area music awards I've won. And I can look at that at the wall. Every time I get down on myself, I just turn to that and be like, dude, 
you've done that in 20 years. Like, shut up. <laughs> like you, right, you're, right, doing, right. you're doing fine, dude. You're doing it, it, fine. It's, it's the aspect of stepping back and saying, God damn, I, I actually did it. <laughs> I did it. You know, you don't, you know, yeah. When you're in the midst of it, and like you said, hustling to, to get to what you think that next plateau is, you, you lose sight of the fact that like, no, you actually did what you came here to do. <laughs> yeah. And, you know? and way more. Like if you told 13 year old Joe, that like, hey man, one of these days you're gonna share this. You're you're literally gonna be singing. Like, if you told, and let me see, twenty year old Joe, when I went and saw Pantera and Typo Negative opening, uh, and I fell in love with Typo Negative and became one of my favorite bands. So if you told me that, you know, in in a decade's time you'll be sharing the stage with Peter, like not only opening for him, but like literally getting up on stage and singing Black Number One with Pete, you know, like, and I'd be like, wow, awesome shoot me now because that's all I want right is that and it's like I've done that and and so much more and it's like all right <laughs> or 12 year old Joe watching you know Wrestlemania one saying hey one of these days one of the biggest wrestlers in the world most known wrestlers in the world is going to be coming out to the ring to your voice <laughs> so it's like all right dude like stop complaining you're doing the, 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 the thing I think that happens too with any facet of the of the, the entertainment industry is I think a lot of people get into it initially. There's a purity. It's something that they absolutely love. And, you know, there's, there's that saying that if you do something you love, you'll never work a day in your life, right. which, you know, is yes and no. Yes and no, yes. And, <laughs> and, and what I found happen, happening is I spent, like we, we talked about, you know, the time your 10,000 hours, I spent all those years working to get myself to build my brand to, to, to be a recognizable brand that I could then turn into a commodity. And once I did that, as soon as money became involved, the joy quickly went out of it. Yeah. And, and I found, you know, people would say, Oh my God, you have the best job in the world. You must listen to music all the time. And it literally, literally got to a point where it was like, no, I listen to sports radio most of the time. <laughs> I can't, and listening to music. And, and when I finally removed myself from that, when that became something in my past, um, I, I remember as clear as day, I was going out for a run and I was like, you know, I haven't listened to music when I've gone out for a run. And when's, when's the last time I listened to an album from start to finish? So I threw on a pair of headphones and I was really tentative about it. And I went for the run and I came, I got home and it was almost a relief that like, okay, that purity and that joy from when I was a kid, it's still in there somewhere that I, I, it, I can rediscover that and, and find my way back to the things that attracted me to music and the arts in the first place. And that's kind of, that's kind of what I've been doing over the last several years is, is acclimating myself to the kid who would just get lost in an album or, you know, fall asleep with the turntable going. And, and it's, it's, I'm actively working on getting that back. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was one thing that I was thankful for COVID for is that like, I went from playing, um, you know, 300 plus shows a year, just constantly running out the door to go play a, a local gig. You know, I didn't really travel very far, maybe Rochester, maybe, uh, Albany once in a while, but majority of the time I was within an hour of home. 
Um, but that gets to be a, a super grind too. It's almost as bad as being in a van all the time, you know? So, mm-hmm. um, it was, it was to a point where I was like, woof, you know, I, I was almost, I, I was going to a gig and like just looking at the clock going, all right, I got an hour left. I got 30 minutes left. All right. I got five more songs left. I'm like, just, all right, give me my money and let's get out of here. You know, like, I want to get out of here. I want to just wanna go home. And I was burned out. And then COVID hit and we couldn't go anywhere. And then, and I, you know, transitioned into the streaming world, which now has given me even more freedom uh, than ever before to do what I want with my career. And it made me fall in love with music to the point where I finally, like I hadn't written anything in years. Cause I just, by the time I was done playing a gig, the last thing I wanted to do the next day before I played another gig was to sit down and play music and write music. I was like, eh, I want to do nothing until I have to play for the money tonight, you know? Um, yeah. But this past year has really made me kind of fall in love with being a musician again. It's given me the freedom. I'm, I'm hopeful that within the next year, financially, I'll probably be one of the most comfortable spots that I'll be in. I mean, I'm not going to be rich, but a, a, a spot where I can have more freedom to be an artist again. Because then I all of a sudden became this person where I'm like, I, now I feel like a grinder monkey. And it's a great job. Yeah. Listen, I would never complain about my career. I love what I get to do. People would do ungodly things to have what I have with with my career. But at the same time, I don't care who anybody is. It's going to get to be a grind, and that's what it was. And it's, I'm glad that's happening to you because it definitely happened to me. You know, so and it, yeah, it, it is. It is. It's. It's. You know, people ask, "Well, do you still write?" And I'm like, "Yeah." And, uh, where can I read it? I'm like, you can't, it's, it's not for, it's not anything that's ever going to be published anywhere. It's just for me, for the sheer joy, joy of the craft. Um, you know, to remind myself that, and not to, you know, not to sound overly arrogant, but to remind myself that like, yeah, I'm really fucking good at this. I was really, really good at this. So, um, so, so if I, so if I, commissioned you to write something for the 20th anniversary of brand new sin to like, because I basically, and I'm, we'll talk about this openly on the air because I mean, my podcast is still building. So it's not all of a sudden it's going to be this landmark news, but like if I had you like, Hey, can I pull you out of retirement to be like, Hey, we're going to do this lead up to our 20th anniversary shows. And like, you know, it'd be cool to have someone like you write, a piece, you know, because you, you know, the history of the band, you've been here since day one, you know, my, my answer to that would be maybe. Okay. That's uh, fine. That's better and, than and no. <laughs> and, and the reason I say that, and like, I've had, I've had friends of mine say that like, Oh, you'll, you'll do that again. You'll do that again. You know, you were really good at it. You'll do that again. And I'm like, but that's my decision to make. And you know, just cause you're good at something doesn't mean that you have to do it. And honestly, my, my fear is that the person that made me, because I was just so driven, um, I, I'm, you know, it's almost like a Godfather thing. I, I don't want to get sucked back in. I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to be, I don't want to be, you know, it's funny. I still, I, I, I'm not a music journalist, uh, an active music journalist anymore. I mean, it's been several years since I actually uh, had anything published. Um, I still host a, a, a weekly radio show on a, on a college radio station, and um, it's no longer done as a stepping stone, hoping to, to, to take it to commercial radio. Um, it's an outlet. You know, it's just for, 
Yeah, it's just an outlet. And um, I, so I still do that, but I was working on this radio show one weekend and um, I got sidetracked during the day. So it was actually pretty late at night and it, it was a Sunday night and it was, it was getting close to midnight and, you know, I have like the one light bulb on the string and, and the computer's grinding away and I, and I, and I got it all done and I just had this deja vu of like, how many years did you sit at this very same desk at this very same computer? You know, the sun's coming up and, you know, you foregone anything else in your life, you know, the people, the relationships, the, every, everything else in your life. And I felt extremely uncomfortable that, that I, I, it was just a very, very uncomfortable feeling that I couldn't get out of that room fast enough. Right. And, oh, that makes sense. And so when I say maybe it's because there's still that trepidation at the yep. back of my mind, like, okay, is this going to take you back to the, the person you were then? Is this, you know, is, well, is that... Is that aggressiveness toward your career going to resurface? I, I won't ask you again, but I planted a seed. And when that time okay. comes, when, right. when, when I, when I right. got that time, but I'm definitely planting a seed because it would be cool. It would be cool because we're starting to gather like stuff from our history. And I'm finding like, I just, I haven't looking at the right now, the VHS tape of our very first show. I didn't even know existed. So like, I didn't even know anyone had video of the very first time the, you know, the six of us played in public. So it's like, that's pretty cool. So, but I mean, I'm shit. Right. We've, we've kind of gotten away from all this stuff. And at some point I got to wrap up because I got to, I got to stream tonight at six 30, but like, so you could say this. Well, we need, we need, we need to do part two. We'll do part two. We're going to have to do part two at some point. But, <laughs> but I mean, if I had to pick, if I had to pick the second decade where I think music met, uh, music, it was, it was as important it's tough because the eighties and nineties to me really blur together because of my adolescence into my early adulthood. And it meant a lot to me because, you know, my adolescence was one thing and in my early adulthood of going into concerts and really diving into the industry myself means a lot to me. So I have romantic visions of both of those decades. What would you, oh, of course. what, what would you, would you, would you pick the eighties over the nineties or the nineties over the eighties? I would, I would, well, I'm a little bit older than you are. Right. So, um, my, you know, my back and forth would be between the seventies and the eighties, to yeah. be honest with you. Um, and I mean, if I, if, if I could, if I could change the rules of what a decade is, if you could say, <laughs> if you could just stipulate that a decade is 10 years, I would probably say like, Oh, 75, 85, you know, it's um, hard to just like that. make it concrete because yeah, music trended in such weird ways. Cause I mean, you think about it, MTV didn't hit until what, you know, it was 40, what was it? The 40th anniversary just the other day. It was 40 yeah, years. Yeah. Just the other day. Yeah. And, which blows yeah. my mind. Cause I remember being at my grandparents' house and the kids from next door coming over, they're like, you got to turn the channel, whatever. And it was like that, the cable box that had the little slider on it. Do you remember that one? <laughs> Where it's like yeah, had numbers yeah. and it was like, he had to slide yeah. the numbers. That was like their cable box. So you got to go to this channel 26. I'm like, what is it? And they're like, they're playing music on this. And there's these things. I'm like, what? I remember that day vividly happening. But, so but yeah. What happened? Yeah. Yeah. But the thing that happens too is, you know, your whatever point that you were in your 
you know, your adolescence, you, you, when you were in that range of, say, 11 or 12 to 17 or 18, whatever point, the, you know, whatever music was at that point, you're naturally going to gravitate to that as the best for, uh, you know, the best period of time for music. And it, it isn't necessarily, I, I've thought about this a lot because, you know, this, this is the type of question that comes up, you know, what was the best year for music, best right. decade? And, you know, there's always, when you get, when you get to be guys our age, you're like, oh, you know, the best, <laughs> best music, or we were, blah, blah, blah. Right. you know, kids now don't know. So it's, but it's, it's the, the, the thing I realized is when you're first starting to listen to music and, and opening that door, you have absolutely no point of reference. You've never heard anything before. True. So you're, you're a 12 year old kid. And let's say you hear, I don't know, we'll say black Sabbath, heaven and hell. You've never, ever heard anything like that before. So you're just going to immerse yourself in that. It's the most amazing thing you ever heard. You're going to listen to it over and over and over again. You're going to fall asleep to it. You're going to play it in your car. You know, you're going to have that so ingrained into who you are it isn't like when you get to be in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s that you hear something and you're like, oh, yeah, I can instantly rattle off 12 other things that sound very similar to that. <laughs> you've heard it. You've heard it before. Yeah. You know, and that's not to say that the first time you heard it, that it was somebody, you know, discovering fire or inventing the wheel. It's just you never heard where they got it from. Right. So you know, that's, that's the thing. And, and that's, I think what makes those formative years, the music that was there, that's, that's going to be the well, stuff. Th- that there you was, lack, I, think lack there, I think there was a study done and we were talking about this on the radio show when I was doing uh, K rock morning show here. Uh, and I was on twice a week. And I think there was one of the subjects we talked about on one of the morning shows is that um, the music that you listen to, they figured out some scientific study that when you were 13 or 14 years old, as that is like, that, that's pretty much when you like, that's, that's your music. That's who you are musically, you know, barring, you know, some people like us who are always going to be open to newer music, but for the majority of the people in the population, whatever they were into at 13 and 14 years old is what you're going to listen to for the rest of your life. And you're in, that's going to be your, that's going to be your, uh, your bar. That's going to be your, 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 your A to B or whatever you want to call it. You know, your litmus test to anything. Which makes sense. It does come back to that. Even as as, as you and I being such music fans as we are, I think we still go back to that litmus test of what we were when we were 13 and 14 years old. I think so. I mean, you know, with the technology now, you can have thousands, if not tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of albums at your fingertips. And I will spend, you know, if, if I decide, all right, I'm going to dedicate a, a time to sit down and listen to an album start to finish and I'll spend a good 15 or 20 minutes just thumbing my way through you know all of my choices and invariably I will come back to probably the same three or four and you know like oh okay well I guess I'll listen to Cheap Trick and Color or I'm going to listen to Queen Live Killers or I'm going to listen to Kiss Dress to Kiss you know it's just the stuff that it, it's just it's like coming home it's it's comfort food it's you know, that type of thing. Yeah. But, but that having been said with what you were saying about like those, you know, that, that early age period, thank God that I was, I was 13 in 1980. So back in black British 
Steel, The Number of the Beast, uh, Diver Down, 1984, Shout at the Dead. You know, so... It, it, in that sense, yeah, okay, I'm I'm pretty fortunate that that was the period where I was really immersing, beginning to immerse myself in music yeah. because, you know, screaming for vengeance and to, to oh. kill them all, and you know, I could. <laughs> Let's see, yeah, we'll holy, get that. Well, that, holy diver, yeah, and that's the other thing. When I go to the '80s and I start thinking the albums that shaped who I am, you know, I I'll say the '70s all day, but then I'll start thinking about the '80s and I'm like, oh my god, that record, that record, that record, that record. Uh, you know, Appetite for Destruction, Master of Puppets. You know, like, let's go down the list. I'm like, shit, man. I uh, yeah. With when I'm yeah. saying that, I almost have to say the '80s. You know, yeah. so um, you know, but without I don't know, without the '70s, it would not be the '80s. Without the '80s, it'd be the '90s. You know, that's you know, it's just the natural right. progression of anything. So, but we definitely right. we definitely have to do a part two. Like I feel like we're just scratching the surface. Oh, we are. You and know? I knew that we I would. Just- I, I was just thinking for everything I mentioned, though, but boy, damn it, there's just sometimes when I want to listen to Steely Dan. <laughs> me too, me too. I was, rep- I was playing the other day. Last night I played Dirty Work by Steely Dan. I'm like, man. Oh, was, nice. That's nice. Like, that's, an, that's a song that like when I listen, I remember one time I was coming home from a gig. It was a 50-minute drive from Oswego to Syracuse. I listened to that song on repeat the entire drive. <laughs> For one that's song, and everyone's awesome. like, "Why?" And they're like, "Why did you listen to?" It? I go, "One, it's a great song. Suck it. The song isn't long enough. It needs to be. They needed to have another verse and a bridge and all this stuff. Like, dirty work is only like two minutes and thirty seven seconds or something. It's a very short song. It's one of those songs. Like, dude, it needs to be longer. So I have to listen to it multiple times in order to get happy with it. You know? Yeah, that's yeah. funny. Roger, man, thank you for coming on. We'll be in touch, and definitely part two is going to have to happen real soon. So. All right, you tell me when, and I'm there. All right, man. You take care. I hope life is well, man. Likewise, my friend. Right. Take care. Bye. Man, I I knew when I got Roger on that we were going to talk. I mean, the dude is a wealth of knowledge, and I mean, we I mean we 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 lightly hit on his journey in the music business as a writer. And I mean, dude, his first interviews out of the gate as a music writer, Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley, two of the biggest rock stars of all time. You know, Blackley Lawless getting him a gig with Metal Edge, you know, and then he started talking about these concert reviews. Like, like listen, Roger's been around all of them, and he's not hes not a musician. He's just a music lover and a writer, and he's an amazing writer. I'm going to have to dig up that uh, article. I'm hoping to be able to, um, you know, like, find that article to, for you guys to be able to read as a part of all this, man. But, I mean, he's just he's, – you can see why I had such a great interview with him and why his um, – his, um, his time that him and I spent in person meant a lot to me just because we just connected, man. And I love having conversations like that. So, um, Roger, thank you again for being on there. There is definitely going to be a part two, because again, we are just getting going and we'll pick up right from where a lot of stuff, everybody. Thank you again for listening. Um, this podcast has been so crazy this summer with how busy things have been on and in real life for me, uh, you know, and the rock and podcast is still in the, in the works, uh, I was hoping to have it done in out by September, but I don't think that's going to happen with the way life goes. Um, but if you dig this, share it with people, tell people what's going on with this. And, uh, anybody who's listening to man, I fucking love you guys and gals for, for supporting my podcast and everybody wants to advertise. We're still looking for an advertiser. I got a few people that are interested 
and doing a few things. So, you know, this is the time where I'd be, Hey man, go to Bill's shop and get the best subs around, you know? So let's make it happen. Everybody, you have a great week or whenever you're listening to us, be safe. Get back to me safe and sound. I love you. Peace out. Yeah.